as I've been saying in the weeks past, we're going to hit all these Proverbs and read them as we go. And so I'll leave reading these, what's on your page, for a few minutes ahead from now. But let's pray first. Lord Jesus, it's a safe place to be if we're weak and you're strong, if you are who you say you are. It's okay for me to be weak if you're strong. It's okay for me to not have it together. It's okay for my friends in these chairs to not have it together, for them to be distracted. It's okay for them to have a, a hundred things weighing on their minds and hearts right now. If you are who you say you are, Tonight could be fruitful. We could leave here a few inches taller spiritually, a few inches deeper in our friendship with you and each other. We pray that you would make that happen. You're a good friend. You love us faithfully. Let the next few minutes together, looking at your word, hearing from your voice, be another expression of your friendship to us. We ask this in your name. Amen. Um, I wasn't trying to be cute on here, and I kind of go for this alliteration of faithful friendship, the foundation of a faithful friendship, finding faithful friends, forging faithful friendships. What I ran into the past few days as I've been wrestling with this stuff and thinking about it is I think I've stumbled into like a massive bankruptcy of vocabulary when it comes to friendship. I just not many words out there or descriptors or adjectives that really get at what friendships are. What makes one friendship different than the other friendship? Let me give you a comparison to prove my point. Think about our romantic lives or the dating realm and how specific, detailed a lexicon we have for romantic stuff. These are just a few. Uh, These phrases, though they don't seem to mean much, mean a lot. We're talking or we're just texting. We're hanging out. He's breadcrumbing me. She's put me in the friend zone. Ten years ago, you would have said it's Facebook official, and that would have meant something to everybody. Your relationship was somewhere that it wasn't before. And again, that's just a few. You have all of your language with your friend group, all these detailed ways we have to describe what I am to that girl or what she is to me. We're not okay. We're not content with ambiguity in our romantic lives. We sit around all night in our houses talking about it. What did this mean? What did that mean? We've got to figure it out. That's why such a huge vocabulary has developed to describe this kind of weird romantic relationship versus this kind, versus this kind. There's a huge taxonomy of romance in your head. Why isn't there that for friendship? I know there's some slang terms. I know there's ways we kind of use shorthand to talk about how this friend's different than that friend and what that means. But at the end of the day, aren't we really just left with words like acquaintances, good friends, close friends, best friends? Maybe you get a little bit more specific. I have work friends or RUF friends or dorm friends from freshman year, high school friends. But still, such a clumsy vocabulary to try to describe all the different levels and gradations and stages of friendship, right? Seems like we get pretty clumsy when we come to talking about friends, which I don't know why that is, but I I, I wonder if the reason is is that we're actually content with a lot more ambiguity in our friendships with each other. Our friendships with each other, we're more content for those to be undefined and left fuzzy. We're more okay with um, me not knowing who you are to me or what I mean to you. 
or what you want out of the friendship or where you want it to go. Could it be that we're, we're content with not having answers to those questions or we don't know how to get answers to those questions? And so we just lump everybody into these same three categories of friend, close friend, best friend. It's not just me. Snapchat, a year and a half ago, did a global survey of its users um, and used the same basic three categories. They were asking people basically to give us information about your social network, your friend group, and it came back in these three basic categories, best friends, good friends, and acquaintances. Just so you can compare yourself, this may depress you or make you feel awesome. The average person, or the average Snapchat user, reports having three best friends. Uh, Americans have one best friend less than the global average, and about two or three less than Eastern cultures. But about three best friends, seven good friends, 20 acquaintances. And they define the categories this way. A best friend, according to Snapchat, was someone you share everything with. A good friend, someone you rely on and can trust, but don't necessarily share everything with. And then an acquaintance, someone you're friendly with, but not as deep or vulnerable. And I, those are kind of good definitions. I mean, I don't have a problem with the definitions. My qualm, my bone to pick on the front end of this message is just that we don't have many words to describe these things because I think we're content with so much ambiguity that a lot of us don't know who we are to each other and our friendships feel a little bit stalled out because we don't know that. Proverbs, I think, is going to tell you, God is going to tell you that clarity in your friendship with your friends is critical. Defining the relationship, particularly with your closer friends, is critical. It's the same thing with, with romance. Like, we don't know how to act towards each other if, I don't, if, if a guy doesn't know what a girl means to him or vice versa. That's why we try to figure it out. I don't know how to talk to them. I don't know how to text with them. I don't know how to act with them until we get that clarified. We don't really know how to be friends to each other until clarity comes in who we are to each other and how we're to be friends to each other and what, e what a friend even is. God is telling you clarity here is actually more important than clarity in your dating or romantic world. Proverbs will tell you, Proverbs will suggest that your friendships are perhaps going to be more critical than your boyfriends, your girlfriends, or perhaps even your family and even a spouse. Your friendships and how frequently it comes up in this book as God the Father is training his sons and daughters how to navigate life, in particular in the places where there aren't rules or clear lines. He's going to say, your friends and how you do friendship with them is going to have a massive impact on who you are and who you become. So where do we start? What's the foundation of friendship? You know, we did this last week. If you've been around the church or Christian stuff or RUF very long, you know how this kind of stuff goes, what we're doing up here. You're like, okay, it's going to be like a half-hour message, and uh, we're going to open our Bibles, and we're going to explain it and try to make sense of it and try to apply it to real life. And then uh, the guy's going to end with Jesus, right? He's going to send you out the door, as he should. The whole Bible's about Jesus. We never want to send you out here with more stuff for you to do. We want to send you out of here with your living Savior and Redeemer. But Proverbs actually doesn't do that. Proverbs is the reverse of what we normally do here. Proverbs starts with Jesus. 
I'm not going to rehash last week. We spent 15 minutes talking about it, but Proverbs says the beginning of knowledge, the beginning, the starting point, the start line of this journey towards wisdom begins with fearing the Lord. Just being so jaw-droppingly in awe of him, impressed with his love, taken by his grace, moved by his reality, captivated by him. It says it all begins with fearing him. So Proverbs would take us back, when we're going to shift and talk about friendship, Proverbs would take you and me by the hand and say, no, 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 let's not talk about friendship and how to be good friends to each other, and then at the end say, and don't you know that when you and I are good friends with each other, it points to Jesus who's really our friend? Proverbs says, no, we're not going to have any of that. We're going to Jesus first. He's the friend. He's your friend. And you'll never know what true friendship is until you understand him and how he's a friend to his people. So as we talk about friendship, it begins with him. Deep companionship, deep fellowship, deep reciprocal, reciprocated love and joy and enjoyment and delight. We got to go back to the source, which is him. We are made, you are made in the image. God made you in the image of a friendly God. God is a friendly God. He is three persons, one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Never been a time where he hasn't been. He's not young. He's not old. He's always been. And he's always been in relationship and friendship with himself. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit aren't in a tough with each other. They're never on, not on the same page. Full alignment. Deep, infinite delight. Boundless joy in their friendship with each other. And when God decided to create little creatures who remind him of him, in other words, when he made us in his image, he didn't just make you social creatures. I know that's the phrase we like to use today. Human beings are social creatures. Dolphins are social creatures. Chimps and whales are social creatures. Dogs are too. We're friendly creatures. Friendly. Uh, which is so much more, so much deeper than mere social creatures. Ray Ortland shows us what I'm talking about when I say that a friendly God has made you in his image, and that's why you crave friendship. That's why you are, at your best moments, friendly, and that's why you hate unfriendliness, what sin has done to friendly creatures like us. Ortland writes, oh, the heart of God the heart of God, the heart of God is friendship reaching out. The heart of God is an outstretched arm befriending his enemies. Befriending people who weren't interested in him, who, ha who had not befriended him. But making the first move, taking the initiative of friendship. Well, there's a thousand reasons I've come to believe that the Bible, that this is absolutely 100% true, without error, is authoritative, is the true interpretation of the way the world really is, the way you really are, the way God really is. But reason number 1001 um, is that there are things in here that if, if, if a bunch of people just got together and were like, let's make up some belief system and try to get a lot of people to believe it and see how viral it gets, if that's how this, where this book came from, it's inexplicable why there's certain things in here. There's stuff in here that nobody would ever conceive of 
And the way I know that is no other religion that has been fabricated or manufactured over the centuries has captured what God has told you about who he is to you. For example, I've been talking about this in Freshman Fellowship the past two weeks. Um, you wouldn't know from intuition uh, that, that, that God says one thing that he does to his people in grace is adopts them into his family. So you could still have Christianity and a gospel um, with Jesus' death and resurrection, with forgiveness of sins, with you being raised up to new life in Jesus. You're alive forever. You could still have a gospel and Christianity with uh, you're a new creation. God's beginning again in you, uh, and he's going to make you more and more like Jesus. He's going to change you. You could still have a gospel knowing that there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth and have hope. So you wouldn't expect, like, why does he add on top of that that I call you son now? I call you daughter. That's not intuitive. Uh, what's intuitive is a transaction. You know, you go in there and God signs some paperwork and he says, okay, you're good now. You know, kind of try to go and sin no more. But what he has done with his people is said, you're family now. You're my son. You're my daughter. You live in my house. You have a bed in my house. You have a chair at the table. You coming to the Father is like you going home for a break. When mom and dad come out to welcome you. Dinner's on the table. Your bedroom still looks the way it does. Your stuff is still up on the fridge. People get your sense of humor. People know what questions to ask you. People know when not to ask you questions because you didn't sleep the night before. That's home. That's family. And God has said to his people, to those who have put their faith in Jesus and trusted that he is who he says he is and will receive sinners the way he says he will receive sinners, God says, you are my own. I am a father to you and you're a son to me forever. It's not just cleansing from shame. It's not just forgiveness, but your family. And he goes on in other places and he adds other things that no one would ever guess. Uh, what's more intuitive is that you're subjects of God who is your king, that you're disciples of Jesus who is your master, that you're servants of Jesus who is Lord. That makes sense. But that Jesus calls you his friend? That Jesus, God in the flesh, also tells you, and I'm not ashamed to call you friend. Have you ever had your friend groups bump into each other? Uh, maybe you went to visit a friend at another college from back in high school or whatever, and uh, you're with them, and one of their friends that you don't know bumps into them, and they introduce you, and you're like, how is she going to introduce me? What am I? Am I going to be like, oh, so-and-so from back home? Or are they going to say, a friend? Or maybe an RUF friend uh, bumps into your, like, chem lab friend on campus, and you're like, how are they going to introduce me? Am I a friend? When Jesus introduces you to other people, he says, this is my friend. I love her. She's, I love this girl. He publicly owns you as his friend, which means Jesus lets you in. Jesus lets you into his world. He lets you into his life. Jesus defines the relationship. Jesus tells you what you are to him. He doesn't leave that for you to figure out. He tells you who you are to him, what you mean to him. He clarifies the relationship. He draws near to you and he lets you draw near to him. He gives you access. He hears you. He sees you. He knows you. He gets you. And all the things that you see on your page here about what true faithful friends do, Jesus in perfection does 
to you. So, some of these Proverbs talk about a friend loves at all times, but a brother is born for adversity. What does that mean? It means that your friends choose you. Your family has to be your family. Doesn't mean they don't love you, doesn't mean they don't like you, but your brother, your sister, your mom, or your dad has to be there for you when adversity comes. They're obligated. That's what family does. Friends don't have to be there for you. A true, faithful friend loves you because they chose to love you, and they choose to keep loving you all the time. Jesus doesn't love you out of obligation. Jesus chose to love you, and he continues to choose to love his people. What else does it mean? It means that he's not all talk, but he's action. Many claim to have unfailing love, but a faithful friend, who can find? If you know Jesus, you found a faithful friend. This rare jewel that is not low-hanging fruit, but is one of a kind. It means he's not a lazy friend. He's willing to do the work of forging a friendship with you. If you're like me, you think a lot of times in past tense, stuff God did for me back then when I became a Christian or whatever, but did you know every day, every hour, Jesus plows ahead forging and building a friendship with you? Did you know that your friendship with him is dynamic and evolving? That 10 years from now, it's going to feel and be different than it is right now, just the way it is with you and friends? That's what kind of friend he is to you. He understands what's on your plate. One of the Proverbs down here about not overstaying your welcome Faithful friends understand what their friends that they know and love are dealing with. And they give room in that friend's lane for them to get done what they need to get done. Jesus is not a flatterer. Jesus isn't, so, Jesus isn't a parasitic friend to you. He so needs you to like him that he can't tell you the truth and he has to flatter you and people please you and say, oh, interesting opinion, but never, never challenges you on it and says, you're wrong. You're wrong. How do you think you had it figured out this short of a little life? Uh, have you thought about this? He challenges you because he loves you the way that a friend that you trust to challenge you challenges you. He sharpens you, which means that there's a, such a proximity of his life to your life that there's a rub, there's a friction that's making you better, that's knocking off rough edges. He is leaving you different than he found you. It means all of these things. It means what C.S. Lewis said. My favorite quote, Anna and I have a, a, a picture of us on our wedding day, and this C.S. Lewis quote in calligraphy right underneath it, but C.S. Lewis defines a friend. A friend is someone who knows the song of your heart and reminds you of the words when you forget it. That's Jesus with his people. He knows the song of your heart. And he's so faithful to remind you of it when you forget the words. In despair and forgetfulness and discouragement and hard-heartedness, there he is, there he is at all times, pursuing and loving and sharpening and confronting and encouraging. So, look, let's get practical and shift into where to find friends and how to be a friend. What do you think happens to people who are filled with this divine friendship? What do you think happens to, to people who are awake to this divine friendship that their God has in fullness towards them? They are so satisfied um, that they're actually available to be this kind of friend to other people. Does that make sense? 
uh, maybe it'll make sense when we think about the alternative. What happens to people who are empty of this divine friendship? It could mean you don't know God, you're not a Christian, he's an enemy to you right now, you don't know him in this way. Um, it could mean that you're a Christian, but you've kind of fallen asleep to these things. You've lost sight of it. You've lost apprehension of your friendship with God. What would it be like for someone who is emptied of this kind of friendship? Um, well, uh, basically, um, when we are empty of this divine friendship, you will look to your friends to be divine. You'll ask mortals to be divine. You'll ask it of them, you'll expect it of them, or you'll subtly demand it of them. And you might not even be, it might be in your subconscious. And the only way you would know that you're asking a mere mortal to be divine for you, to be Jesus to you, is that there's just a constant sense of being upset. Have you ever been upset at a friend because she wasn't omniscient, didn't read your mind and know what to say to you, when to say it, or didn't call when you wanted her to call because you never told her what was going on, but you really wanted her to know? That's what I'm talking about. That's, what it, that's that subtle expectation of asking a mortal to be divine, holding your friends to divine account. Have you ever just so deep down to your bones wished a friend was omnipresent there when you needed him, and he wasn't? And you got, it, it, it hurt you so deeply. It confused you. It made you wonder, where is this relationship? These are examples of when we are empty of the friendship of Jesus or asleep to the present, fierce, full friendship of Jesus that's aimed on you like a laser. We begin to ask for that and demand it in our horizontal relationships. And that leads to whatever psychological term you want to put on it, codependent relationships, parasitic relationships, narcissistic relationships. Uh, as the joke goes, two ticks without a dog. And so they just latch onto each other and try to suck life out of the other. Nobody's in on the joke. We don't know what we're doing, but it's two people who are asking the other person to be their everything. And it doesn't help that every song and every movie and everything in our culture is basically giving you warrant and license. It's okay to ask everybody else on earth to be your everything. Your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your husband, your wife, your friends. But you see here that how that leads to foolishness and insanity when we are asking other people to be something they can't possibly be and we have stratospheric, unbelievable expectations of our friends. Do you see how it necessarily keeps leading to conflict? It necessarily leads to disillusionment, disappointment, distance between you and your friends. It also leads to this parasitic and codependent kind of stuff. There's a lot of Proverbs about flattery. Look down at that third section. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. And he says in verse, uh, Proverbs 29, 5, those who flatter their neighbors are spreading nets for their feet. Codependent friends, it, look, if I need you to be my everything, if I need you to be my confidence, my security, my affirmation, my love, my attention, if I have to have it, I can't tell you the truth. Don't you know that? Why? Because it might risk ruffling your feathers and you might withhold the attention that I really need from you, the love that I need from you, the inclusion that I need from you. I can't be a friend to you if you have to be my everything. Does that make sense? I can't love you. I can't be available to you. I can't serve you. I can't say a hard thing when it's needed to be said because I need you too much. 
what happens if both people in a relationship are like that? It, it, it gets toxic pretty quickly, right? There's just a lot of strife and acrimony. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, that old German pastor, he was um, a brilliant guy. He wrote a little, little book called Life Together that you should read because it's phenomenal. But he says in that book, um, he whose dream of community, he who loves his dream of community better than his actual community destroys community. Take out the word community and put in friendship. If you love your dream, your fantasy of what a friendship should be, more than the actual friendship you have or the actual friends that you have, you'll crush your friends and you'll lose the friendship. That's what these apocalyptic, apocalyptic friendships look like where I ask you or you ask me or we demand to each other that you have to be my everything because I'm so empty of the friendship, the filling, satisfying friendship of Jesus towards his people. Um, imagine a hypothetical at a, at a kind of at a human friendship level to really drive this home. Imagine two scenarios. In, in scenario one, a guy, girl, guy and girl are dating. They have no other friends, no other connections. They come to stuff, but nobody really knows them. They've not invested to really get to know other people. All they have is each other. Then there's scenario two, guy and girl. Uh, girl, you know, has really invested in her friends. She's got a squad that just loves her, knows her, when they need to, they're there for her. When they need to, they confront her. He's got a band of brothers. He's been through hell and high water with these guys. They know each other. They've got a thick relationship. Now, let me ask you, which of these dating relationships do you think is going to be healthier, safer, richer, fuller, better? The one here where they have nobody else except each other and they're both asking everything from each other, or this one where there's a network of people giving them confidence, giving them affirmation, giving them security, giving them direction, helping them figure things out, being a confidant. These two people don't need the other person to be everything, and so they're available to serve. And they're actually available to enjoy the person that they're in a relationship with, instead of always hating them for not being who they're comparing them to. I hope we've driven home the point that without the foundation of friendship being rooted in our divine friend, Jesus Christ himself, who has befriended you in love, who has made friendship with him possible because of what he's done on the cross. Without that foundation, what we've been talking about the past few minutes is the kind of relationships you're consigned to. That's the ceiling, and it's an unbreakable ceiling because you'll need people to be everything to you. So where do we find these close friends? Um, I really don't know. God engineers that part. I mean, if we polled all the people in this room and said, where did you find whoever your closest or best friend is right now? I bet we'd get as many answers as there are people in the room. Oh, uh, camp, this camp we worked at. I had no clue who this person was beforehand. We lived with her and she was the roommate I knew the least, but we became best friends. Lived with her on Creswell last year. Whatever it is. Sat with her at large group, roomed with her at winter retreat. Uh, I don't know where these friends come from, but we tend to find them when we know who we're looking for and when they know who they're looking for. When do we find them? That Snapchat survey said the average American found their best friend at age 21, which means most people between high school and a few years after college, that's when they found their best friends, when they shared all of these things together. But when you know who you're looking for, 
And when other friends out there know who they're looking for, for these close, deeper, more intimate friendships, you tend to find them because you were fishing for them. The paradigm is you look for people who remind you of Jesus. How does the relationship spark? C.S. Lewis says some shared interest, Georgia football, I don't know, fishing, RUF, you both love working on cars, you both want to go into marketing, and you met at Terry, whatever. Some shared interest that your friendship begins to be about, but then you begin to explore each other. And, and the two of you become a whole new area that you explore together, and your friendship becomes something that you explore together. That is hard to find. And if you have found it hard to find deep and close friends like this, hear God tell you, yes, it's hard to find. Proverbs 26 in that first section, many claim to have unfailing love. People who will throw their arm around you in a little drunken moment and say, man, I love you, are a dime a dozen. They come and they go. They're not the people you're going to be talking to or in relationship with five years from now, much less 20 years from now. But a faithful friend? Proverbs asks, who can find that? That is rare. That is not low-hanging fruit. That is not this Disney version of like falling in love where I just, gravity takes over and I just find this friend they dump into my lap and it all goes from there. Um, Sometimes that's what the beginning of these friendships is like. You meet, you talk, you hit it off, you kind of have a friendship crush thing going, you're like, I love this person, I want to spend more time with you, but then the work begins. The work begins. And that's why I put on here Proverbs 6, 10 and 11, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a thief. Financial poverty will come on you like a thief because of laziness and not putting yourself out there, and relational poverty will come on you like a thief when you don't put yourself out there. Here's a tragedy, and I get this because I feel probably just as insecure as y'all do and as socially awkward as many of you do. The people that I've observed over... 15 years of doing campus ministry one place or another, the people who tend to make friends are the people who tend to show up. It's just how it works. They keep coming back into hard rooms where they don't know many people. They keep coming back to that small group. They join that circle and they keep coming back. The people that you talk to junior or senior year, not always, but more often than not, who will say, I don't have any friends, more often than not, not everybody, tend to be people who tried two or three or four times and threw in the towel. They're not people who tend to have taken God seriously when he says it is hard to find good friends. It takes years of work, years of searching. Sometimes flakiness forecloses any opportunity for friendship to blossom and happen. Um, You know, you're never returning texts, never returning emails, never returning calls of your friends. You turn down invitations, and then you wonder why no one calls you anymore. I don't think that's their fault. So there's an opportunity for you to change there. It takes a risk. You put yourself out on the line to take a chance, to be available for people to pursue, for you to pursue other people who feel in that position as well. You put yourself out there so that other people searching for friends can bump into you and so that you can bump into them. What do these friendships look like is where we end. What does it look like to forge this relationship? What characterizes a deep or a best friendship versus some other kind of friendship? 
Well, let's say you hit it off with someone, you met someone, you lived with someone, similar personality, similar interests, you love hanging out together, but you're wondering what's next. How does the relationship get to a deeper level? Somebody in the friendship speaks out of this godly discontent with the way things are, and they, they wonder, is there more? And they have the courage or the faith or both to stick their neck out and take a risk with this new friend and say, um, you're really important to me. I just wanted you to know how much your friendship has meant to me this year. I was in a hard spot. I've been here three years and I don't know anybody. And for the you're the first time I've ever felt seen. Guys, can you ever imagine a scenario where you would say that to another guy? <laughs> you're probably gonna have to if you want a deep friendship. I'm not kidding. That is risk. It's a gift. It's you putting your life in the hands of another, which is what friendship is. It's you leaning toward Jesus, your friend, who has been vulnerable with you, who makes it safe for you to be vulnerable, who tells you the truth, who doesn't pretend and posture and flatter, but tells the truth. Girls, can you say that to each other? You mean a lot to me. Even without any thought of like, well, I'm going to say this so that she'll be my best friend and not be that girl's best friend. I'm going to kind of use this to manipulate her and get her closer to me. And I'm not talking about that. Can you say it with a pure heart? I've really appreciated Wherever this goes, I'd love to get to know you more. I kind of want to put more cards on the table of my story. I need you to know me. I would love to know you better if, if you trust me. But that's how friendships turn a corner into deeper friendships. Someone clarifies who you are to them, or you clarify who they are to you. Someone is willing to sharpen. Someone is willing to be sharpened. Sometimes these friends are willing to wound each other because you'll never be friends with a perfect person except for Jesus. You'll only be friends with a sinner, someone who is struggling with this emptiness of divine friendship and turning their head back to their friend in Jesus. And so, sometimes you'll have to wound a friend by kind of telling them, um, I'm not sure that was the right thing to do, or that really hurt, like what you said actually like really, really hurt me. And I'm not saying that to punish you. I'm just saying that because I actually care about you, and I don't want you to keep doing that to me or other people. Deep friends, close friends, best friends see future you. They see who you're becoming in Jesus and they get excited about that vision and they roll up their sleeves and they say, I'm here, I wanna help you get there. What do I have to do? Even if it means risking your disfavor, even if it means risking you not being my friend anymore, I'm gonna tell you the truth in a way that you can hear it. Good friends, best friends, close friends, respect each other. This weird proverb about not overstaying your welcome lest your friends hate you, it sounds funny, it sounds like, okay, get off the couch, get in your car and go home at a certain time. What it's saying is friends respect the burdens their friends bear and they don't intrude all over them. They know when to say, hey, look, I know you've had a hard week. I know now's probably not the time, you just need some time alone, I'm gonna get out of here. Even if you're lonely and wanna be with them that night, you get in the car and you head out because you respect them and you wanna give them time to move through what they need to move through. 
Lastly, good friends, best friends, close friends get you because they've paid attention to you because they learn you. And if you want to be a good friend, best friend, close friend to somebody else, as you pay attention to others and learn them and learn their heart, you know what kind of humor is okay and not okay, what kind of sarcasm is okay, when sarcasm and humor is the antidote and when it would be wounding. Like a maniac shooting flaming arrows of death is one who deceives their neighbor and says, I was only kidding. That's not a friend. That's somebody who shoots their, their joke first and aims later because they don't know you. They didn't realize that joke in that moment would cut you to the core. Conversely, they know when a little humor would lighten your load, let you laugh. Friends, as we wind this down and end, I come full circle and I ask you, as you think about being this friend to other people, leaning in this direction of friendship, letting others lean in this direction of friendship to you, clarifying your relationship with other people, do you see God, your friend in Christ, clarifying again and again who he is to you, who you are to him? Do you see him being vulnerable with you? Do you see him letting you in? Do you see him pursuing you, sharpening you, wounding you, healing you, remaining with you forever? If you don't know him, he's a friendly God. He befriends his enemies. So acknowledge that you're far from him. Acknowledge that you're his enemy and ask him to be your friend. And he has a heart full of love that he will pin on you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are our friend. Fill us up with this divine friendship. Fill us up with your affection, with your love. Father, fill us up with our sonship, our daughtership in Christ, with our adoption. Fill us up with this family spirit of love so that we would be available to love and serve and give to others. We ask all of this in your name, Jesus, our friend and brother.